The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union Army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream hundreds of Gettysburg videos online, on the app, and on Roku. Learn more at GettysburgCollection.com. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Today we're filming on location at historic Hannestown, outside of Greensburg in Westmoreland County. From the drafting of the Hannestown Resolves in 1775, to the claim of sending some of the very first volunteers to serve under General George Washington, the settlement of Hannestown has long been considered a vital part of the revolutionary cause on the American frontier. But with that fame came a terrible price, as British allied Indians, seeking revenge of their own, attacked and destroyed the settlement in 1782. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss the history and legacy of Hannestown is Lisa Hayes, Executive Director of the Westmoreland County Historical Society, and Dr. Peter Gilmore. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Lisa, I'd like to begin with you before we get into the, the history itself. Tell us a little bit about the history of this site. Well, um, after the town was destroyed, it was farmed for about 140 years, and in the late 1960s, the family, the Steele family, who owned the 180-acre farm, were ready to sell, and the Westmoreland County Historical Society did not want this important site to be uh, lost to de housing development or a shopping center or something like that, so we started the process of trying to acquire it. And eventually, um, in 1969, Westmoreland County acquired the site, it is a Westmoreland County Park administered by the Westmoreland County Historical Society. So we started the archeology span right away um, and then we started reconstructing the buildings in 1973. Peter, I'd like to pose this question to you. In the 18th century, colonists in the East always called this place the frontier. What exactly did that mean to them? It meant this was contested land. This was a contested borderland between settlers and between Native Americans in the 1750s between the British and the French. So the, 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 the developments in the world that led to the creation of Hannestown are also those that led to its fiery destruction. This global competition between Britain and France for control of North America, specifically the forks of the Ohio, the gateway to the interior of the continent, and then secondly, the decision, the calculated decision by Native Americans that in order to halt European settlement, they had to engage in this protracted war against settlement. So that's, that's the frontier, this bloody contested ground. And it often, um, 
at least here, was uh, delineated by the Allegheny Mountains. So it's like the Indians are willing, okay, the settlers are coming, but stop here. When we talk about the Ohio country, which is, for all intents and purposes, western Pennsylvania, it's not a very hospitable place for settlement. What changes that allows a place like Hannestown to occur? Well, the first thing that promoted settlement was um, the French and Indian War and the Forbes Road. So uh, once the territory was opened up, um, the, the settlers came down the Forbes Road and up the Braddocks Road and um, were willing to settle. Also the availability of land east of the Allegheny Mountains, you know, was getting pretty well taken up. And so west of the Allegheny Mountains, there was still some open territory. We talk about settlers. One of them is Robert Hanna. Who is he? Why does he choose this place? Robert Hanna was one, and his wife, uh, Elizabeth Kelly Hanna, were among many thousands of people who had come from the north of Ireland to Pennsylvania and then westward across the mountains along the southern tier of Pennsylvania. Robert Hanna probably emigrated in the 1760s at the same time as Hannestown neighbors and contemporaries and married relations. And what was available was the opportunity, as Lisa said, to have land. And Robert Hanna was among those who arrived early, acquired a spot along the road convenient to a spring that, that became the nucleus of settlement. And so those who came also, who were his neighbors, were those who settled in Hannah's town, were people like him and his wife. People who had come recently from the north of Ireland, or like Elizabeth Kelly, Hannah, were the children of, of earlier Irish Presbyterian immigrants. You mentioned the Irish being a big part of this story. What was it about the frontier that really attracted them the most? Four-letter word, land land, inexpensive land. These were people who, for the most part, had been tenant farmers in the north of Ireland. So they were tired of the uncertainty of life, the uncertainty of the size of the rent increases they would face when their leases expired. They wanted to come to a place like Pennsylvania where land was inexpensive, and sometimes they didn't bother paying for land either. But it was a place where they could be independent of landlords, of an established church. They could create their own communities, worship their own way. Lisa, what are some of the dangers for a family choosing to live here? Well, there was the natural dangers like rattlesnakes. Um, you know, when we formed a flag, um, the rattlesnake was prominent on it as a warning that, you know, to watch out. So rattlesnakes were certainly a problem. Um, Native Americans were scary. Um, to many people because culturally they were so different so and and there were also it's especially initially weren't a lot of of goods and services and conveniences available so you really had to bring what you needed to survive with you and very quickly be ready to deal with um, harsh winters and and hot summers and wolves and bears things that you don't see around here anymore but it was typical for families to if they had a couple of sheep to bring the sheep in with them because they would be gone in the morning. They'd be, they'd be wolf food. If we were to have visited Hannestown in the 1770s, walk the streets, what are some of the things we'd see? Well, if you came during court, you would see lots of people crowded into town. 
Um, and for those people, there had to be accommodations available because court went on for weeks, depending on how many cases there were. So there had to have been uh, enough houses and taverns and places that would rent you uh, sleeping space you know, to accommodate the people crowding into town. So there were houses, um, at its height it's described as having 30 houses, um, outbuildings, certainly a very prominent road, so there would always be people traveling down the road. Um, you would see a jail, a pillory, a whipping post, those are all in the court records. Um, so and you would see kitchen gardens and, and some larger outlots where, you know, acres where people planted good, you know, grains and corn. If I, if I could add to that for just a little bit, by our standards, it would be a pretty shabby place. But coming out of the mountains, coming out of forests, amazing, this conglomeration of humanity and buildings, 20 to 30 buildings, not big by our standards, but huge. If all you've seen for hours is maybe that lone cabin cleared in the, in the, in the mountain forest. Is there anything else that rivals Hannestown west of the Allegheny Mountains in the 1770s? Well, around Fort Ligonier and Fort Pitt, there were settlements. Um, around the fort, military contractors were necessary to the functioning of the army. So there would have been settlements around the fort, but no town like this, just the cabins and little farmsteads that Peter referred to. It was a way station between Forts Ligonier and Pitt but that made it important. It was an important site for that reason, because there was nothing else. Hannestown is named as the seat of the new county of Westmoreland County. How important was that county system to the colony of Pennsylvania? Well, Westmoreland was the last county formed west of the Allegheny Mountains. Um, so it originally encompassed all of southwestern Pennsylvania. People had to have access to a court system. Um, people sued each other a lot in the 18th century. So, um, but the alternative was, you know, taking justice into your own hands, and that's chaos. And it was very important to the English system of, of civility that, that there be order in the community. So the courts brought order. There was a messier reason, too, and that is the dispute between Virginia and Pennsylvania. The, the fact that Westmoreland County comes into existence only a couple of years after the other westernmost county, Bedford, has everything to do, I think, with the royal governor of Virginia's decision, that's Lord Dunmore, to stake out his claim to southwestern Pennsylvania. Fort Pitt for a time becomes Fort Dunmore, and the entire apparatus of Virginia provincial law is established in southwestern Pennsylvania. So this was the attempt by the government of Pennsylvania to say, no, we control this part of the world. And so it was necessary from the perspective of the provincial officials to have some kind of show of administrative discipline here. Peter, was it common for colonies to compete for land? It certainly wasn't uncommon, and Pennsylvania is a notable example. Uh, earlier in the 18th century, Pennsylvania, of course, was fighting with Maryland, hence the Mason-Dixon line. And actually, provincial authorities were directing recent immigrants from Ireland to that border to control that borderline. And Connecticut was claiming the northeastern part of Pennsylvania. New Hampshire and Massachusetts were fighting over the Merrimack Valley. So, yeah, there was some of that going on for sure. 
I think in early America, um, people often considered themselves not necessarily Americans, but Virginians, Pennsylvanians, New Englanders, New Yorkers. So they were quite willing to bicker. We talked about the importance of establishing a courthouse. Even the sign for Historic Hannestown says, first courthouse west of the Alleghenies. When we see that, is that a courthouse we'd recognize today? Um, no, when the county was formed in February of 1773, court was uh, stated to be held at Robert Hanna's house until a courthouse and jail could be built. So sometimes court was held in a tavern as a public building. Um, sometimes it would be held outside if the weather was good. What kind of cases would have been tried? Well, some of the more common cases were your everyday thefts and larceny. Um, a lot of civil cases involving indentured servants. Um, during the uh, Revolutionary War, there were treason cases heard here. Um, thefts, there were only two capital cases heard here. When you come to Historic Hannestown today, we see a number of very impressive replica buildings. What are some of the highlights of this site? Well, the first building that we reconstructed was uh, Robert Hanna's Tavern, since that was important as the site of the first uh, place where courts were held. Um, and next to that is the jail. Also, you'll see the, the pillory and the whipping post close to the jail for convenience. Um, we have a typical German-style house here because in addition to the Scots-Irish, the Germans were a very important immigrant group here. Um, we have a uh, wagon shed which has, houses a wonderful Conestoga wagon, which certainly has a lot of interesting stories to tell about um, the history of America. On site here at Hannestown, there's a very primitive but very ominous fortification. What would that have been used for on a daily basis? Well, it was mostly for the people to run to if the Indians attacked, and they were very fearful of Indian attacks. But it was also during the war a staging place for the militia. Um, there were several campaigns uh, raised out of here, and so the militia would gather here. There was a storehouse here so they could get ammunition, powder, that kind of thing. So the townspeople considered it a safe haven from the Indians. Um, the militia used it as a gathering place. Peter, is it common for a frontier community to always have a fort? Not only communities, but smaller places than Hannestown. Uh, a collection of farmhouses would, within a collection of farmhouses, families would designate one as the place of security, the, re the refuge, the blockhouse. And so all around what, uh, southwestern Pennsylvania, there were blockhouses, which may have been fairly simple affairs. You know, a log cabin that's reinforced, but it's where people in the neighborhood would run in times of trouble. And in the 1770s and 1780s, there were a lot of times of trouble as Lord Dunmore's war bled into the American Revolutionary War. I'd like to talk a little bit about the rivalry between Hannestown and Pittsburgh. <laughs> That, ran, that manifests itself in a few different ways. What's the basic story there? The basic story is the assertion of, of Virginia's control over the region. Um, the construction of a county system for southwestern Pennsylvania, the designation of Pittsburgh as a county seat, the renaming of Fort Pitt, Fort Dunmore. And so in, in about one year's time, Robert Hanna personally was arrested and jailed three times by Virginia authorities uh, and people in Hannestown arrested 
Virginia authorities and housed them in the Hannahstown jail only to be broken loose by a posse of several armed mounted Virginians. Um, so it got kind of intense. We're leading up to the age of the American Revolution. We know the familiar story out east. How were people viewing it, obviously busy arresting each other, here <laughs> on the frontier? Well, news did reach here in, in a relatively short time. Within a month, the people of Westmoreland County had heard about the incidents at Lexington and Concord. And so the residents of the county gathered here at Hannestown and I dare say argued, debated, discussed, um, what are we gonna do about this challenge? Um, you know, these, our country has fired on its citizens. What are we gonna do? So um, they, they came up with the Hannestown Resolves and um, it was a bold precursor to uh, independence. It was bold, it was revolutionary, it was radical, but it was also a little bit schizophrenic. The resolves asserted that it was intolerable for British troops to have fired on Americans. The resolves called upon the creation of local militia who were pledged to defend America against any invaders, and by the way, called for the election of officers, which was a fairly radical move at the time, when officers were propertied, socially prominent gentlemen who were appointed by other socially prominent property gentlemen. To be have officers elected by the ranks was a bit, well, it was pretty radical. At the same time, though, the Westmoreland farmers gathered at Hannestown declared their strong loyalty to the king. And they also said they weren't interested in any kind of newfangled constitutional arrangement with Britain. They just wanted things to go back to the way they used to be before the Stamp Act, when America was a happy, contented part of the British Empire. But in the very next resolve, they said, we'll maintain our militia until the British government comes to its senses or until we have a new constitutional relationship. A general union, they said, of the American colonies. So we're loyal to the king, but you know what? We'll, we'll go down that revolutionary road and become an independent nation if we have to. I put it in a continuum that includes the the Scottish Covenant of 1638, which said something kind of similar. If the, we fully support the king, we're loyal to the king because we think the king, if he was really thinking, would think just like us. And in the 20th century, loyalists to Northern Ireland declared their loyalty to the monarchy by breaking the queen's laws and the use of force of violence, also relying on this tradition that dates back to the 1600s. So it's it's a revolutionary statement, a bold, radical statement wrapped up into this kind of otherwise peculiar statement of loyalty to His Majesty. The frontier is an interesting place. We talk about immigration. We have this idea that's something in the past, but many of these Irish really brought the old world with them. In the case of someone like uh, the sheriff of Westmoreland County, Matthew Jack, he and his brother were, had recently come from the north of Ireland Robert Orr, uh, a married relation of Robert Hanna, who raised a company of militiamen from Hannestown, had emigrated in the 19, excuse me, the 1760s. So they hadn't been here long, 
and their way of seeing the world still had to do with landlords in the established church and a state that was supportive, indeed constituted both, uh, were constituent of both, and were determined to, to have land and hold on to that land. They were also determined to, to organize their Presbyterian congregations and to worship each other in ways that would have been very familiar to, to them growing up, the ways in which their cousins and relatives back in Ireland were still worshiping. If you immigrate to the frontier, you have really two options, Hannestown and Pittsburgh. How do you choose? What's the one major factor that pulls you to one or the other? Well, I, I think having the, the courthouse here, or the, the courts being held here at Hannestown was certainly attractive because if you're a businessman, you know that you're gonna have steady customers at least four times a year. So, you know, that's always a good thing. Um, of course, Pittsburgh's gotta be attractive because of the three rivers and easy transportation. You can get anywhere from Pittsburgh. I think, again, it comes down to the land. And few of these folks would have been coming with capital. Few of them would have been engaged in, in businesses. They wanted a piece of land where they could raise food and support themselves. And this is convenient. It's right on the road. Um, I'm guessing because it's not as close to the perception of danger from Indians and hostile foreigners. You know, unfortunately they were wrong in 1782. It had those attractions. Um, there are those who boldly went west of Pittsburgh and settled in the southwestern corner of Pennsylvania who with Dunmore's War and then the Revolutionary War, the, the reality, not just the fear, but the reality of Indian attacks drove them east, drove them back towards Hannestown. People in Hannestown fled east of the mountains, actually. Um, there are letters from the 1780s that describe this, this region as half deserted because of the fear and the reality of attacks by Indians. When we deal with the American Revolution, especially the East, taxes are inevitably going to come to the conversation. Did the Empire have an effective way of really collecting people's taxes here on the frontier? I don't think so. I, no, probably not. I mean, the taxes that's, well, what we might compare to taxes would be, you know, the, the rents that Robert Hanna collected annually on the property owners here, but those were Hanna's. They weren't technically taxes. If, if I could jump in on that, I think where the issue in terms of the Revolutionary War is present, it's the, this, the calculated decision by Native American peoples to ally themselves with Britain. And so Britain becomes the Indian threat in a way. See, it becomes a continuation of what folks faced back in Ireland in terms of the powers that be putting a limit to their ability to support themselves. And certainly Native American warriors armed and supplied by the British Army are that barrier to their supporting themselves and their family. The Hannestown resolves, very influential. As you've mentioned, make it very clear there is a an openness to responding back to the empire. And what is the point of no return? At one point, is the revolution fully on for them here against, against Great Britain? Well, I would expect the, the Declaration of Independence when, when the East goes um, 
for independence, I think, you know, we followed suit um, enthusiastically to some degree, but there was certainly differences of opinion. There were loyalists here on the frontier, um, but gradually as the war dragged on, more and more people came to side with independence. What's interesting is the way that Virginia-Pennsylvania dichotomy influences how the Revolutionary War is shaped in the West, because the man who was appointed the sheriff for the Virginian county based in Pittsburgh was himself a loyalist and followed his, his master, the royalist governor, Lord Dunmore, to a British ship docked off the, off the, off the Virginia coast. And it was easy, maybe not always accurate, sometimes it was accurate, to label the supporters of Virginia as actually Tories or leaning towards Toryism. So the assertion of being Pennsylvanian was simultaneously an assertion of being for American independence in that respect. Who is John Proctor? Well, um, John <coughs> Proctor had uh, served in the French and Indian War. He had defended Fort Bedford during Pontiac's War, um, left there by Bouquet. Um, he had, was the first sheriff of Westmoreland County. Um, he owned about 300 acres in current, uh, what's present-day Latrobe. So he was also the head of the first militia. So um, th th they took their, their militia and their drilling so seriously that they, that they formed because of the Hannestown Resolves that, you know, they had a very nice flag uh, made to represent the militia, and it, it bears his name, John Proctor. I would add that he was also from, from the north of Ireland, was also a Presbyterian. The local people used to gather at his farm for worship services in what is what was called at the time Proctor's Tent. It wasn't actually a tent. It was a, a crude wooden awning over the minister and the Bible. That was the extent of the tent, but that's where people gathered on Proctor's farm. So he was a person of standing because of his service in the French and Indian War, because he owned more than 300 acres, but because also he was the neighbor who brought other people to worship with him on his farm in Loyal Hannah Creek. How important is ethnicity, uh, religion, to the politics of the frontier? I would say paramount. That that's that's my own my own own bias because there were so many concentrations like at Hannestown of this ethno-religious group that I call Irish Presbyterians and other others call Scotch Irish, who made a point of living with one another, of marrying one another, of worshiping together, of building a sense of community through that prism of ethno-religious identity. And there were pockets um, of German Reformed and, and Lutherans who would also settle together in the absence of a specifically Lutheran or German Reformed minister would worship together because through their own language they could communicate with God and with each other through German, which was very, very important to them. Um, so the way that these ideas, these currents, they're sweeping across the Atlantic and across the mountains about independence, republicanism, how those were interpreted was through people's own experiences and through people's own language. So the Irish Presbyterians, because of their particular sense of religion, because of their own experiences in the north of Ireland, had a, their own particular interpretation of republicanism. This was something they could grab hold of. 
and something parallel but different for the Germans, I would think. So in their own separate ways, they came to similar conclusions about the significance of American independence and of supporting the war effort. John Proctor fits a certain mold. As you mentioned, his ethnic background, his heritage being part of it. What sort of a person do you have to be to really be considered a leader on the frontier? It's a very self-sufficient place. Well, I, you know, I think the physical attributes are one of them. You need to, you know, to appear to be healthy and capable and, and confident. Um, so that's sort of a persona you have to project to inspire, you know, conf confidence among your people. And I think, you know, people did respect people who owned money. Wealth was still some, uh, you know, some degree of, of indi indication of success. So, you know, the fact that he owned land and, and was a religious man and, um, you know, all those things would, would build respect. And also, he was paymaster during the Revolutionary War, so when you go to him to get your money, <laughs> that, that helps. that's attractive. Yeah. Is it fair to say that frontiersmen are anti-government? No, I don't think so. No. Suspicious maybe of government, and certainly demanding their own, you know, their, their own respect and legitimacy, but I think they recognized a need for government. It's a, the question is, whose government? Right. What government? Um, the pattern that I think one can perceive among the Irish Presbyterians is creating government, creating their own sense of government. So the, the famous case, maybe not so famous, is the Fair Play Settlers in Pine Creek in North Central PA. They were far removed from, from Philadelphia. They created their own government. The, the very name Presbyterian is a reference to a form of church government. And wherever they congregated, they created sessions, these committees of elders, elected elders and ministers, who collectively would make decisions about, the, if you will, the morals of the people in the neighborhood, but would, in their own way, create a sense of government that provided checks to excesses of unruly behavior. So not anti-government, but rather insistent upon a government that was theirs. Was responsive. Yeah, which is, which is why this idea of republicanism, as they understood it, was so potent, so vital, because it meant self-government, their self-government. Do we know much about Proctor's malicious participation in the American Revolution? Well, we know that um, a lot of the men from Westmoreland County um, served in the Continental Army. Now, whether they served as a unit together is, is unclear. Um, but the people from Westmoreland County were at pr most of the big engagements that you read about in the history books. Um, you know, Brandywine, Germantown, Princeton, Trenton. They wintered with George Washington at Valley Forge. And then as even Washington started to pay attention to the troubles on the frontier, you know, they came west and served in a lot of the um, expeditions against the Indians, uh, providing protection in the Wyoming Valley as well as, as, as here. My understanding, and I may be wrong in this, that at least some of the men raised by Proctor then went on to serve, went on in the 1770s and 1780s as the rangers who patrolled the hills north of here to guard against Indian incursions. And certainly that's true, yes.
I'd like to talk a little bit about the revolution that very few people understand. That's the revolution in the West. The revolution in the East, we're quite familiar with. What were some of the major factors that led to the unrest in the Western part of the colonies? Well, um, certainly the Native Americans allied with the British because they knew that if the colonists won, we were here to stay and we were just gonna keep encroaching. Um, so certainly um, the Native Americans were willing you know, willing to, to fight to keep that. So their best chances were to ally with Britain. Britain was glad to have the Native Americans on their side because um, that kept some fighting men from going east and fighting you know, with the Continental Army. So if they can conduct a war on two fronts, that, that divides the colonists. And, and they had an ally who was willing to take that fight to the people. So um, here in, on the Western frontier, um, civilians and towns like Hannestown were on the front lines and we were constantly under threat of attack by the Native Americans. Um, but I don't want to give the impression that the British ordered the Native Americans around. They certainly did not. The Native Americans had their own opinions and their, their own ways to make decisions and decide what they were going to go. But the British um, encouraged them, they um, gave them provisions, they, they gave them ammunition and guns, and also there were some English rangers um, and soldiers who accompanied them to try to, you know, give their idea of what they thought the Indians should do. But certainly it was up to the Indians to decide what they were going to attack and how they were going to act. A circumstance of competing strategies. So each of the groups involved had their own vision of how the war should unfold to their benefit. So clearly for the British, it's to distract Washington and the continental forces in the east. It's to prevent the western region from supplying food and personnel to the war effort. For the Native Americans, it's to stop the European encroachment. For the settlers in western Pennsylvania, for the townsfolk in Hannestown, it's to survive. It's to hold on to the homes and the farms so painstakingly won from the forest. And survive at a time when many of the men were off fighting either with the Continental Army or on some of the militia expeditions to try to take the, the fight to the Indians in their own villages. Um, so, you know, the civilians who were here, the men, or the, the old men, the women, the children, you know, they had to take care of everything that was needed to survive. So these were tough times for these, for these civilians here. Could we talk about some of the major battles, perhaps, of the western part of the revolution, maybe involving some of the individuals from Hannestown? Well, probably the one that came back to, to bite them later was um, participating with uh, Colonel Broadhead in Sullivan's expedition. So um, that was 1779, and uh, George Washington was trying to put an end to these pesky Native American attacks that were robbing him of, of supplies and, and, and soldiers. So he sent Sullivan up from Philadelphia, and Broadhead left Fort Pitt with a lot of militia from Westmoreland County, Hannestown area, and uh, they were to meet up north, but on the way they were um, burning Indian villages at a time of year, it was in August, when there was no time to replant. So um, certainly a lot of those villages were devastated and they didn't kill that many people in the actual you know, uh, attacks on, on the Indian villages, but they left them without a way to eat through the winter. So a lot of them died of starvation that winter. So they, they participated in Sullivan's campaign. 
Um, th later they were with um, Lockery in his failed attempt to, George, to, to join George Rogers Clark for another attack in the Illinois country. Um, many of them were captured or died at Lockery's uh, defeat. Um, they participated with William Crawford when he went again up to Sandusky to try to, to stop the Indian, Indians from um, in their own villages. So they participated in all those activities. They were with General Hand. Um, when, and they were all attempts to try to get to Fort Detroit, try to in, intercept the Indians um, in their own villages before they could attack. Um, but, you know, the Indians were certainly aware that a lot of these um, militia that were attacking their villages were coming from Westmoreland County, and they didn't forget. I want to emphasize two of the many battles that Lisa mentioned. The first is, is Lockery's defeat. Uh, I think that's crucial to the fate of Hannah's town. Archibald Lockery was another of these Irish Presbyterians who lived near Proctor, what's now Latrobe, agreed to raise three companies, one of which was organized by Robert Orr, a uh, relation by marriage to Robert Hannah, here at Hannah's town. The, as Lisa mentioned, the Lockery companies failed to meet up with Clark at the appointed time, they were a day or so behind, ambushed on the Ohio, I guess in what's known Indiana. Everyone was either killed or captured. And one of those who was captured and taken off to Montreal was Robert Orr, where to his horror and surprise, he's, he meets his, his relation, Elizabeth Kelly Hanna, and learns of the destruction of the town. Elizabeth Hanna was of no doubt that her captors knew who she was. And they were well aware of where Orr and his men had come from. Then just a month before the attack on Hanna's town in June of 1782 was the Crawford disaster, where the American forces are, they're supposed to be, they're supposed to have the almost surprise behind them, but they're the ones who are ambushed and they suffer heavy losses. Crawford himself is burned at the stake. And so it's probably not a coincidence at all that the very next month an attack is launched in Hannah's town where the Native Americans and their British allies know that most of the men of fighting age aren't there. They're dead or captured. If you can put yourself in the place of those, those townspeople who were here, they've heard of the torture of Crawford. You know, they've lost brothers, husbands, sons in these um, expeditions. And, you know, so they're very vulnerable here and, and they know it. They feel that, um, that loss and that sense of fear very much. Before the war, uh, again, warfare shapes, I think, the mind of many settlers revolving, involving Native Americans. Before the war, are there Indian traders in Hannistown? Most likely there are. Um, you know, early on in Pennsylvania, the relationship with the Indians was, was mostly peaceable. Um, they, there was mutually beneficial trade arrangements between them, and so likely there were some Indians in and out of Hannistown. Uh, we do know Simon Gurdy was here at least sometimes, um, and he was an Indian captive, but he still maintained many of his English um, friends even when he was freed, or his um, Indian friends even when he was freed. I don't know that many characters really embody the frontier more than Simon Gurdy. Could you... Well, he's perfect, yeah. Uh, he, I hate to keep on bringing this up, but his father was, was from Ireland, 
and his his father's story kind of embodies that fluidity you know the easy back and forth between european and american world uh european or in, in native american world uh, his father was an indian trader his father was supposedly killed on a drunken argument with one of with one of his indian companions simon gurdy and his brothers are captured uh, and raised by native americans and never feel quite comfortable in european american society and drift back easily between the two worlds our bridge between the two worlds the the trade that was so important ultimately to france and britain both united and divided the colonists the european nations the native americans and Simon Gurdy was one of those who embodied that contradiction and the easy movement back and forth, or sometimes the self-tortured movement or, or problems of identity. But yeah, he was all of that. He really does embody the frontier. And, and Gurdy was with, um, was with the Indians at Lockery's, is that correct? Um, he's, no, I don't think. I think he was at, uh, at the, at the at execution Cro of Crawford. Crawford, okay. Yeah, yeah. We're going to jump ahead to July of 1782, sort of the event that brings us here for Battlefield, Pennsylvania. We see a major Indian offensive with this place as a target. Why here? Well, uh, again, awareness that um, a lot of the men of Westmoreland County had, had been part of those militias and part of those um, uh, forces that attacked their Indian villages. Also, the Indians weren't stupid. Um, they would attack a site they expected they could take. So, you know, attacking Fort Pitt might have been risky and foolish. So they attacked vulnerable places and they perceived Hannahstown as, as being more vulnerable than Fort Pitt. Also, they're, they're, you know, uh, the head, at least one of the heads of the attacking force was a chief Sayangarakta and his village had been wiped out in Sullivan's campaign. So he might be looking for some revenge. And so Westmoreland County was a good place to find that revenge. When we talk about the Irish, the Indians, there's, is there an animosity between them naturally from the events leading up to the, the uh, American Revolution? I think one of the things that um, sometimes we don't like to talk about because it's, it's ethnically insensitive, um, at this point during the war, the attitude of the citizens, most of the citizens in Westmoreland County was the only good Indian is a dead Indian. We were afraid of them. And there were atrocities committed by both sides, but you know we weren't uh, we weren't very sensitive to ethnic differences. And so, for that reason, I would answer the question by saying there was an unnatural animosity. There was an animosity that developed as a result of the severe set of circumstances into which both groups were placed. Uh, the Irish again being driven by desire for land and unfortunately the land was perceived by others as their own and inevitably there was conflict and a conflict without any immediate option of, of meaningful reconciliation other than kill or be killed I'm afraid. Many Americans view the American Revolution as having ended with Yorktown, George Washington, 1781. This attack comes in 1782. Put that in perspective for us. Why then? 
Well, I think the Native Americans wanted to do everything they could to drive the settlers back east of the Allegheny Mountains. And so as, as they th see things clearly not going England's way, um, they're trying to make a stand to, uh, to keep more of the territory that, that they want to keep. Now, th this is uh, a calculated strategic decision. So some native peoples who had allied themselves with the French now find themselves agreeing to work with the British for the same reason, play one group of Europeans off against another in order to maintain some control of the situation. And so it, what happened at Yorktown was not relevant to the, to the Seneca, it's not relevant to the Mohawk or to the Delaware, but the opportunity to attack this community and isolated cabins and settlements in southwestern Pennsylvania was part of their strategic vision of what ought to be happening. Let's go to that day, July 13, 1782. If you're here in Hannestown, could we go through the events of the day as though it were a traditional battle? When does it begin? How does it manifest? Well, we know that the Native American force of at least 250 left Fort Niagara and, and they came down the Allegheny River and they arrived here. They were here for maybe 10 days before they were discovered, which might indicate that the people of Hannestown um, had sort of not been so watchful and so worried, were starting to relax. But um, at some point in the morning, some harvesters that were north of town um, saw the Native Americans camped. And they came back and they raised a warning. And so Matthew Jack, who was sheriff at the time, took six of his colleagues with him and they went out to scout. You know, how many are there? What are they doing? And as they approached the Indian camp, the Indians see them coming and they fire on Matthew Jack and his associates. And so with that, um, one of the horses is shot. Matthew Jack heroically picks up the, the guy who's now horseless and um, they, they ride back towards Hannestown, raising the alarm as they go that the Indians are, are coming, the Indians are attacking. And so at that point, the townspeople grab what little they can, grab in their hands or in their aprons, and they run for the fort because that is safety. Um, Matthew Jack um, undoubtedly leaves some of his men behind to defend the fort, but then he goes off to the surrounding territory um, to Proctor's tent where there is a meeting um, of, of the Presbyterians there and uh, to the neighboring farms to warn them that the Indians are attacking. And we also know at some point the Indian party split up because they did attack other places, not just Hannestown. So as um, the, the settlers are gathered in the fort, um, Michael Huffnagel, the prothonotary at the time, was there and he wrote back the next day to um, General Irvine at Fort Pitt that with 20 men and nine guns in good working order, uh, we kept them from burning down the fort. Um, but the Indians burned and pillaged everything that was in town. Uh, they burned all but two houses. Um, they either killed or stole the livestock, broke everything. So the townspeople were inside that fort watching as everything that they had worked for and um, acquired was just destroyed. Um, but the good news is the people, for the most part, were safe in the fort, and um, with the few men and guns that they had, they were able to keep the Indians from killing most of the people and, and burning the fort. I would add, add a little uh, along these lines. First of all, 
I don't. Th- I'm not sure. I'll disagree with you in one way, and that is, I don't think that they were relaxed in the weeks after Crawford's defeat. There, there was mounting anxiety about the possibility of, a, of an Indian attack. If you read the correspondence that was being received by General William Irvine at Fort Pitt. There was a lot of nervousness about the lack of ammunition, lack of gunpowder. There were, there were constant reports, some of them may be false, some of them may be accurate, of Native Americans being sighted outside of Hannestown in the, in the general vicinity. One man had been killed a couple of weeks before the attack. And yet, and yet there was this desire among the people here to continue as best they could with what amounted to a normal life. So you had the, the crew of harvesters reaping the grain a mile and a half north at a land called O'Connor's Fields, but was owned by Huffnagel. Uh, there, were, there was another group, as Lisa mentioned, attending the preparation sermon that Saturday uh, at Proctor's Tent. These Presbyterian communal services went on for five days. And there was a wedding party done by Miller's Blockhouse. The, the Cruikshanks were celebrating a wedding and weddings like other festivals went on for days. And so there were Elizabeth Hanna and other Hannestown folk were down near Miller's at the wedding celebration. And they were among those who were intercepted and captured by one of the war parties. And so Elizabeth Hanna, Elizabeth Guthrie Brownlee, and others from that wedding party were carried back to Montreal. Elizabeth Guthrie Brownlee's husband was a ranger. And he was either known by, by the Indians by sight or they heard his name mentioned. They killed him immediately and their four, the four-year child of the Brownleys. Um, but people had attempted to live a, as normal a life as possible on that on that bright Saturday in and July. That's also illustrated by the fact that that court was in session. So they were carrying on court, which had been suspended for a while during the war. So, um, but they did manage to get all the prisoners that were in jail into the fort, and um, they they were safe there. Uh, one girl died as a result of the attack. Um, she was trying to get a small child out of the crossfire that was going on and um, Peggy Shaw yes. was shot and uh, she died a few, deers, a few days later. Um, maybe with good medical care she would have survived. We can't really know but she didn't get good medical care so, so she did die. Isaac Steele was killed here at Hannestown. He was driving some horses um, into town or into the fort and the Indians um, tomahawked him and took his horses. Um, those were the two deaths as a result here at Hannestown, but there were, uh, were deaths from Miller Station and also in some surrounding farms. Hannestown is completely devastated by this attack, burned to the ground. Does it ever recover? Well, Hannah especially tried to have it recover, but it, it doesn't really recover. Um, descriptions of Hannestown after the attack um, usually reference, oh, you know, a dozen um, log hovels or huts, you know. Um, court continued to be held here through 1786, um, but it was essential to have places for people to stay when court was in session and there were just getting to be a lot of complaints that, gee, when I have to come to court, there's no place for me to go. Um, and so they started looking for a, a more permanent place to house court. There's recently been some archaeological work 
here at Hannah's Tom. What is that revealed about this attack, if you would? Well, uh, it, it reveals how people were living up to um, before and during the attack. Um, there's, this is a very unique archaeological source because of its brief history, founded in uh, about 1769 when Hannah acquired the property, destroyed in 1786. And then because the town never recovered, it was um, eventually sold at sheriff's sale and farmed for 140 years, preserving it from development. So what we have here in the, in the ground is a snapshot of how people lived on the frontier during the Revolutionary War. Um, also, uh, you know, the fact that it was destroyed by the Native Americans meant that when people moved on, they didn't pick up their stuff and take it. They left it here. It was broken. So there was no sense to, to carry it on with them. So it really is a unique resource in that respect. And, and it reveals some surprising things. I mean, I think there's some stereotypes that um, everybody on the frontier, you know, lived on dirt floors and and um, you know, ate off of bark or something. But um, the, the material culture here reveals Chinese porcelain, uh, Delft, some very you know, nice glassware. There was window glass here. So it, it sort of gives, I think, a, a lesson of, um, of economic diversity on the frontier. There were really poor people here, but there were people who were pretty comfortable too. This was a town after all. It, it's you know not the back of beyond where families living together with their pigs and sheep in a hut. Uh, it is a town. It's a place where people came for the all-important militia muster and, and the court sessions. If you were to describe maybe the legacy of Hannah's Town in a simple way, uh, what do you think is the most important feature of this place? I, I would like um, people to realize um, the frontier uh, battle that was part of the uh, Revolutionary War, the Western Campaign. I would hope Hannahstown would teach people, um, partly because of the results, that you know some of us were were educated here in the frontier. We were articulate and thoughtful. Um, I would like that to be part of Hannahstown's legacy, and I want Hannahstown to teach that um, you know the good, the bad, and the ugly and the beautiful. Uh, that that was all part of our of our ancestors and and the you know the settlers who came here and and the founding fathers who delivered um, the America that we have today. That you know there were things that they did that were wrong. There were things that they did that were right. Um, they were people you know with foibles and strengths. And I, I I want to be able to honestly share you know a a more complete picture of the Revolutionary War and the founding of America. I would say that a new Pennsylvania rose out of the ashes of Hannahstown. This is the last violent chapter of this region's participation in, in the frontier warfare. On that note, I'd like to thank Lisa Hayes, and Dr. Peter Gilmore for joining us today. As always, if you have questions about this episode or recommendations about future episodes, please visit our website at PCNTV. Com. On behalf of everyone here at Battlefield, Pennsylvania, I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer, saying so long.